The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmonton and on this podcast, Lionel Shriver asks whether we're kidding ourselves over Ukraine, Theo Hobson talks about Martin Luther King and the demise of liberal Protestantism, and John Mayer reads his review of Cinema Speculation, the new memoir by Quentin Tarantino. Up first, Lionel Shriver. Optimism can be surprisingly hilarious. In my last novel, two spouses agree to quit the planet once they've both turned 80. And the book explores a dozen possible outcomes of their pact. No chapter made me chuckle at the keyboard more than Once Upon a Time in Lambeth, in which the couple don't kill themselves, but live to 110 in perfect health because they eat their vegetables. Young people flock to their table for advice, as my protagonists grow only wiser and more physically riveting in old age. Meanwhile, modern monetary theory makes everything free. Limitless energy is derived from carbon dioxide. A new portmanteau religion, Jeslam, eliminates Islamist terrorism. The reader gradually twigs that this happy-clappy scenario is a piss-take. My improbably sunny chapter 12 is clearly the one version of the couple's advanced years sure never to happen. Are we in danger of shining the same improbable sunniness on Ukraine? If so, this particular wishful thinking isn't funny. Our chapter 12 in Kiev goes something like this. With unstinting military support from the West, the little engine that could Ukrainian army continues to take territory from demoralized, poorly equipped Russian forces. As for how many years and how much outside money is required for these feisty, tireless defenders of their homeland to reach the vast country's original 1994 borders, in this cheerful version of events, we don't care. Speaking with one voice, leaders from Biden to Schultz all chime, whatever it takes. Eventually, Zelensky raises his hands in embarrassment. We couldn't be more grateful, but please, stop with all the tanks. We've run out of parking spaces. In response, perhaps Putin announces a nationwide mobilization, but the draft backfires. Hundreds of thousands more young prospective conscripts often the best and brightest, flee their country despite Kremlin attempts to close the borders, wising up. Rather than rebuff them, Western countries eagerly absorb these well-educated refugees, thereby shoring up our economic dominance with Putin's own exiles, which is gratifying. Back home, shanghai Russian soldiers are resentful. In battle, they desert in droves, many joining enemy ranks. Despite state censorship, 
Russian opinion shifts decisively against a costly war of choice. Sanctions have at last proved ruinous. Most having born an only son, bereaved mothers direct their grief at Putin personally. Rumors leak that even the president's inner circle is growing uneasy. Behind Putin's back, nicknames are coined with a snigger, such as Adulavatia Litsa, or Puffy Face. Even in Chapter 12, we're not naive. We know a desperate Putin will be drawn to desperate measures. Will he resort to nuclear weapons? In Sunny World, of course not. Putin will rationally assess that nukes would only spite his face. They could contaminate Russia and his own troops, while making little military difference and inviting the full force of NATO down on his head. Or, as Daniel Hannon recently speculated, maybe if Putin did reach for nuclear missiles, they wouldn't work. Either way, we can relax. Fast forward to the finish line. Ukrainian forces push every surviving Russian soldier back where he belongs and reclaim every inch of occupied territory, including Crimea. Ukraine is once again whole and free. Citizens weep and rejoice in the streets. Refugees pour home, raped, starved, and beaten by occupying louts. Russian speakers in newly liberated regions have all converted to Ukrainian nationalism. When the UN oversees elections on sovereignty in Crimea and the Donbass, support for remaining part of Ukraine is 99.99%. Kremlin cronies scurry to the gulag where the brave resistance leader Alexei Navalny is imprisoned and beg him to assume the national helm. Putin sullenly retreats to his $1.4 billion Black Sea Palace spilling Stolichnia all over its subterranean ice hockey rink. Navalny restores democracy and moral order to his beleaguered country. The chastened Russian populace feels ashamed of having been seduced by a wicked monomaniac. Their new squeaky-clean government devotes all its oil and gas revenue to reparations, rebuilding the apartment blocks and power plants that Putin bombed needing to dry out, even his breakfast borscht has become mostly vodka. A maudlin Vladimir Vladimirovich apologizes for his folly and offers himself up to be tried for war crimes in The Hague. In time, our freshly civilized Russia joins the EU and even NATO. The end. What could possibly be misguided about this pretty picture? Reading Paul Auster's Bloodbath Nation this week, I was struck by his summary of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. The message was that the North Vietnamese would never give up, that they would go on fighting until the last person in their country was dead, and that no matter how many additional American soldiers were thrown into the battle, America could never win the war. I scribbled Ukraine beside that passage. But is it the Ukrainians who will fight to the last man, as military support from their allies remains perfectly unflagging? Or is it Putin who will fight to the last Russian soldier, whose disagreeable fate is no skin off his nose? 
It's mooted that one condition rebel Republicans put on finally voting in Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House was a cap on funding for Ukraine. Fiscal balking in Congress could soon constitute blinking first. Like most of you, I viscerally despise Vladimir Putin. Like most of you, I want him punished. Like most of you, I don't want him or his country to profit even slightly from this gratuitous horror show. But outright defeat in Ukraine would finish Putin. He will throw the kitchen sink at this war because he has nothing to lose aside from compatriots he cares nothing for. Given Syria and Chechnya, Putin is apt to withdraw only after raising Ukraine into a moonscape, an excruciating high-fatality process with which we'd feel complicit. The unqualified Ukrainian victory for which the West is rooting looks doubtful. This fractured fairy tale is more likely to produce an emotionally and morally unsatisfying compromise that Putin can sell to his people as triumph and vindication. But nothing would make me happier than to be wrong. That was Lionel Shriver. Next, Theo Hobson. Why does the United States seem to be falling apart? The ideal that used to bring Americans together seems to have failed in some way. Liberty and justice for all is the best summary. Sure, it was always a frail creed, and interpretations of it differed, but still, it semi-worked. The creed failed in a very paradoxical way. It was voiced too well, too purely. Its greatest articulator was Dr Martin Luther King, who is commemorated with a US national holiday celebrated on Monday. Ronald Reagan signed Martin Luther King Day into law in 1983 in less sectarian times. The problem, of course, was that Dr King was black. Half of white America found this hard to take, that the incarnation of the national ideal did not look like them. But another aspect of his identity also served to alienate about half of Americans, ultimately. King was a liberal Protestant Christian, He was, above all else, a clergyman, like his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather before him. All that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it part of my ministry, he said. I have no other ambitions in life but to achieve excellence in the Christian ministry. I don't plan to run for any political office. I don't plan to do anything but remain a preacher. To remember King while ignoring his faith is not to remember King at all. Yet today he is often venerated by those who have very little interest in his Protestant Christian message. His repeated emphasis on forgiveness and loving enemies is not the spirit that animates today's statue topplers. Why was King's liberal Protestantism such a crucial underpinning of the American ideal? Because it was capable just about of holding together religious conservatives those famous tall-hatted Calvinists and their heirs, and the rest. It's America's glue, or was, for it seems to have dried up. King stumbled into politics during his first real job as a young Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama. When Rosa Parks' bus boycott took off, it needed an organiser, 
Emmett Till had been lynched in Mississippi a few months earlier, so violent retaliation seemed on the cards. But King began to see himself as a peacemaker on a national scale. In 1957, he founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with the slogan, To Save the Soul of America. In fact, its target was global, for he linked his work to the decolonization underway in Africa. At Ghana's independence ceremony, he prayed that it will come in this generation, the day when all men will recognize the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. This fusion of the Bible and humanism was the staple of liberal theological colleges, including Boston University, where he had studied. The mood was influenced by exiles from the Nazis, such as Paul Tillich, and also by Protestant missionaries who had become passionate advocates of racial equality and were open to ideas from other faiths, including Gandhi's non-violent protest. More moderate liberal Christians were reassured by the avuncular presence of Reinhold Niebuhr, arch-advocate of Christianity's compatibility with liberal democracy. In short, liberal Protestantism was in a bold, expansive phase. In the early 60s, King's rhetoric became more focused on the spiritual identity of America. In his famous Washington speech, he went straight for the spiritual jugular. When the architects of our great republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And he returned to the theme in the peroration. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. No white person could have revived that founding rhetoric with such force. He understood that such rhetoric belonged more to blacks than to whites, in a sense, for whites had lost the right to say it sincerely. This was not a new insight. The black campaigner W.E.B. Dubois had said decades earlier, There are today no truer exponents of the pure human spirit of the Declaration of Independence than the American Negroes. But King did not just grasp the point, he performed it on television. On one level, that speech was an effective bit of campaigning for further racial equality. On another, it was a prophetic sermon imbued with Christian utopianism. But the religious element refuses to stay in a box. King insists that this outlandish vision is at the heart of the nation's politics. This is who we are, if we is to mean anything. But can a nation cope with such an ethos? Maybe it is too demandingly Christian or Christian humanist. Maybe its rejection of tribalism is unrealistic, at odds with human nature. Similarly, can an oppressed minority cope with the role King announced for it? His policy of non-violence, which he always explained as the Bible's mission, blurs with a sort of cult of holy suffering, 
Not many people want to hear that their political duty is to suffer violence and never retaliate. King would quote Abraham Lincoln by asking, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And tell white racists that we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. The black power backlash was little surprise. Historical struggles for justice had seldom been peaceful. Why should this one be expected to be meek and mild? Because, said King, the only route to true peace is through non-violence and forgiveness. Loving your enemies, he said, is the hard part of the Bible. Martin Luther King Day is a predictable cause for online spats, with woke and anti-woke factions angrily denouncing the other side for daring to recruit the man. They seem to prefer such denunciation to actually trying to reflect on what he said and did. There isn't much enemy-loving going on in either side. We're all separated from King's vision by an immense gulf. His vision was rooted in a particular religious culture, and it collapsed fairly dramatically in the decades after his death. Liberal Protestant Christianity and the mainline churches failed fast. This was partly a matter of whites deciding that Christianity, as King presented it, was just too demanding and too threatening to their idea of themselves. The liberal vision seemed more persuasive in secular form, shorn of the biblical stuff. I admit that the demise of liberal Protestant theology sounds like a rather niche concern, but it may well lie at the heart of America's deepening ideological troubles. That was Theo Hobson. Finally, John Mayer. Explaining how she managed to kick her cocaine habit, the singer Fiona Apple recalled one excruciating night she spent trapped in Quentin Tarantino's home cinema with Paul Thomas Anderson, listening to the two Hollywood directors brag competitively and apparently indefatigably about their professional achievements. Every addict should just get locked in a private movie theatre with QT and PTA on coke and they'll never want to do it again, she informed The New Yorker some years later. I suppose that's one accolade the pair will have to agree to share. Conversations so unstimulating, it undoes all the good effects of hard drugs. Part of his problem, as the reader of cinema speculation quickly notices, is that, as well as being one of the preeminent filmmakers of his generation, Tarantino is also an unreconstructed anorak a self-confessed, brash, know-it-all film geek. And as with anoraks, the love he has for his subject is a selfish kind of love. It is a love that doubles back on itself and becomes part of its own object of fascination. He is more interested in documenting his sensations and observations and the fact that he had them than in whether you're interested in hearing about them. Though billed as a mixture of film theory and personal history, Cinema Speculation is mainly a collection of critical essays about the films Tarantino saw as a child in the 1970s, when his mother used to take Little Q along on her date nights. Most of those celebrated here 
Deliverance, Taxi Driver, The Wild Bunch, Rolling Thunder, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, strike the reader as grossly eccentric entertainment for a child. I saw a lot of intense shit, Tarantino reflects, just making a list of the wild, violent images I witnessed from 1970 to 1972 would appall most readers. In fact, he watched so many violent films that it really does strike the reader as a little unfair when his mother refuses, on rather arbitrary grounds, to let him see The Exorcist, despite her sharing his view that these films weren't doing him any real harm. I didn't see straw dogs back then either, Tarantino laments, but a female child psychologist I had sessions with in school did. When we had sessions, we mainly talked about the different movies we saw. Tarantino knows an awful lot about films, but it's not clear he knows much about anything else. I suppose this is why so many of his own films turn out in one way or another to be about other films. Cinema speculation contains the occasional amusing or striking detail, but this is the result of its being little more than a disorderly heap of details in the first place, a hoarded nest of pet observations and insider trivia that Tarantino, with his anorak mentality, feels too possessive about to bring under any general control for the reader's benefit. As a child, he kept files and index cards of all the films he saw, and at the end of the year would do his own little awards. Those index cards, the reader senses, have been brought out of storage recently. We learn about the obscure B-movies he watched, at which cinema, and in a double or triple feature with what else, what candy he ate, what bits of the film he didn't dig, which bits blew his little ass through the back wall of the theatre, usually the dynamic blood-all-over-the-wall climaxes, which bits scared him and which merely bored him. It is difficult to avoid concluding that Tarantino's aesthetic development was arrested at some point in early adolescence. He reflects banally at one point, there's few things funnier to a little kid than a funny guy cussing up a storm. One suspects the adult Tarantino wouldn't disagree. He is, he says, someone who equates transgression with art. The test of a film's power lies in its capacity to shock the audience out of their movie trope-fed complacency, usually via some vivid demonstration of catastrophic violence. Channeling, with perhaps not too much difficulty, his child self, Tarantino distributes his idiosyncratic praise and scorn among films according to whether they satisfy his sensational criterion. The 1970 hippie massacre film Joe is a cocktail mixed with piss that's disturbingly tasty. Robert Altman's Brewster MacLeod is the cinematic equivalent of a bird shitting on your head, presumably a criticism, though in Tarantino's idiom it can become a little difficult to tell. The scene in which Bambi's mother is shot by the hunter is one of the most unexpectedly shocking and therefore affecting of all. I remember my little brain screaming the five-year-old version of what the fuck's happening? By contrast, the inexplicit freeze-frame ending of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid strikes both the child and adult Tarantino as a cop-out. They should have shown it. There is the faint trace of an interesting memoir in cinema speculation, those references to the child psychologist, and his glancing account of living in his early teens with a sketchy dude and failed screenwriter named Floyd.
Instead, as is sometimes the case with Tarantino's films, the book has the shape of a series of rather decadent set pieces standing in loose association with one another, and of not having been put in front of an editor. Tarantino is a virtuoso popular filmmaker. Unfortunately, it doesn't follow that a master entertainer speculating at length about entertainment is itself entertaining. And that's everything this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. <laughs>